0: Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme.
1: Well, New Zealand's uh, firearms laws are in for a major shake-up which could see semi-automatics uh, like those used in the March 15 terror attacks returning to gun ranges. National and ACT agreed to rewrite the Arms Act as part of their coalition arrangement. Our political reporter Annika Smith has more.
2: The Arms Act has been home to New Zealand's gun laws for the past four decades. It's undergone many iterations including a ban on semi-automatic guns after the 2019 mosque shootings. It was this crackdown that propelled Axe Nicole McKee into politics. She's now Associate Justice Minister and spearheading a complete rewrite of our gun laws. I'm hoping that we can find a middle
3: ground where we ensure we have good public safety but we also stop treating licensed farm owners like they're nothing more than common criminals.
2: New Zealanders overwhelmingly supported the ban on semi-automatics after March 15. But five years on, Nicole Nakoomakee says gun owners feel unfairly treated, even ostracised. Some of the changes on the table include reviewing the firearms registry and licensing regime and allowing competitive shooters to use military-style guns again. It's going to be hard to have this conversation because people already have um, misconceived preconception about firearms but it does need to start but is the public ready for it
0: guns kill should be just taken out altogether
1: putting guns into the hands of young people a lot of mental health issues these
3: days i think it could be disastrous i grew up on a farm and people are responsible usually and i feel like the mosque shooter, he came here and took advantage of a loophole and I don't think it's fair that everyone in New Zealand has to pay for that.
4: We don't need semi-automatic weapons here. You want to go hunting, use a hunting rifle. No need for a semi-automatic. We're not America.
2: Maysoon Salama's son was massacred in the Christchurch terror attacks. She says her community is still anxious and fearful, and rewriting gun laws will only make their lives harder. Still, it feels like it's the first year. Mm. To me and to many others, you know, it's like lots of triggers. We're not feeling safe. We still are getting threats. We're still like, whenever we have any activity or any gathering, For for our community, we feel that we need to contact the police. A scientific review of 130 studies in 10 countries showed relaxing firearms restrictions typically led to increased gun deaths. Across the Tasman, Australia has had no mass shootings since banning semi-automatics after the Port Arthur massacre in 1996. Dan Danzizan from the Islamic Women's Council says changing New Zealand's rules for a handful of competitive shooters isn't right. It does appear to be louder voices rather than the the vast majority of voices in that case. And it's not saying that there aren't rights, but what rights are being impeded by this my salama sees it's a risk her community doesn't want to take they still can enjoy you know their their hobby but there is no need probably for these semi automatic firearms because they really mean uh, war situations they mean uh, this kind of terrorism acts you know so that's what i wanted to add that it's something that new zealand was proud of the government's legislation is likely to be introduced to Parliament later this year and the public asked for feedback through a select committee process.
1: That report from our political reporter Annika Smith with uh, New Zealand's firearms laws in for a major shake-up which could see semi-automatic guns back in the gun ranges. This is part of a National and Acts' coalition agreement.
0: Well, a review has found Immigration in New Zealand didn't properly assess the risk of visa abuse when it loosened settings for the accredited employer work visa scheme. The scheme launched 18 months ago as part of the then-government's post-COVID settings resulted in numerous cases of migrants paying to come here for jobs but arriving to overcrowded living conditions and little or no work. The Public Service Commission report also found staff at Immigration New Zealand raised concerns about migrants being exploited, but they say they were ignored. We're joined in the Wellington studio now by Carolyn Tremaine, the chief executive of MB, which is responsible for Immigration New Zealand. Kia ora, Good morning. Good morning, Karen. This report says, and by and large, you were under pressure to increase the number of, I guess, workers coming in, that the implementation was OK, but there was no risk assessment done prior as to the potential for abuse. Why not?
5: Look, it was a really um, difficult and challenging period of time post-COVID. And I think um, in the report... The reviewer calls it a perfect storm, and it was in many respects. There was a huge um, surge in demand. Uh, There was um, a significant skill shortage in New Zealand. Employers were really crying out for um, people to come into the country. And uh, the AEWV scheme was a very uh, significant change. The previous systems had been migrant led. This new system was employer led. And it, of course, had different processes for employers and it had uh, new processes and a new system. Well, given that, again, well. come
0: back to my question, surely that would have been a red flag that said we better keep a very close watch on this mm-hmm. and do a, a risk assessment because ultimately the report says this was a high trust model. You couldn't possibly assess or check every single uh, employer. So why wasn't that risk assessment accompanying it?
5: So the um, system was high trust, as you've um, rightly said. The uh, declaration that an employer completes as part of the application process to be an accredited employer asks a lot of information, including uh, requiring them to declare that they are a genuine and viable business. Actually, our risk assessment processes uh, start offshore. So we have uh, risk and verification people located in strategic markets offshore, offshore and as part of their processes they are managing social media, reaching out to potential migrants to make sure that they are well informed about their rights in in New Zealand. So what went wrong then if they were doing that? So uh, that is one layer or the first step in providing migrants with a good understanding of the operating environment in New Zealand. Uh, We also have people who uh, work as liaison officers who are working with uh, different parts of uh, the community in New Zealand, uh, people who are working with ethnic communities, uh, people who work alongside our refugee team. And so uh, as a new system arises, we build a body of information that gives us a basis Mm. on which to determine risk.
0: But that's not much good if those concerns aren't being listened to. And if we move to what is perhaps the most alarming element of this report is that staff started raising concerns Something that they say around early twenty twenty three some say even before that, but the documented concern started to come in from twenty early twenty twenty three uh, it took until August for there to be a review. Well, why did it take months, three months I think at least before there was a review when you were being told that there were clear problems?
5: Yes, yeah, so this is one of the most concerning parts of the report for me. Uh, one of the uh, things that we uh, felt at the time was that uh, staff were obviously adjusting to a new uh, system and certainly from my perspective we often see that staff have early insights and um, and their ability to put those ideas forward and have them listened to does not mm. seem to this, this is But this is the thing time. here, isn't
0: it? They did have early insights, but the report says they were dismissed effectively because
5: it was seen that, oh, they didn't understand the new system. So I think uh, there was an element of uh, specificity was missing in terms of some of the information that was coming up. There was a general concern, but really we can only act on. Well, in one more instance there was a, there was this thing.
0: ask me anything hui, which was one of the communications mm-hmm. mechanisms. Uh, the report says I think there were of a hundred and thirty three concerns or questions raised. 20%, Twenty. I think about 26 of them were about the Accredited Employer Scheme. Yep. So that, that doesn't s- suggest that it's isolated.
5: Uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. And my uh, expectation of the Head of Immigration is that we actually have an effective communication process that allows staff to raise things and have their concerns addressed and answered and fed back to them. But the, the, the thing
0: is, though, it also says in the report that at one point, I think it was in May, they changed the rules so that you could no longer make raise concerns anonymously, and the staff then felt that that suddenly meant they couldn't, and, that, and they were demoralised by that.
5: Yes, once again, um, that, that also concerned me when I read the report because uh, having an environment where staff feel that they can put forward ideas and they're listened to and that their insights are acted on. In April 2023 was the first time that we, um, that my head of immigration indicated that she had information that could be actioned on, on. So this is
0: April you were first aware that there was clearly some problems emerging?
5: Uh, Absolutely. That was the first formal um, time that we had something that was identified and actionable. And so from that time, we started uh, looking at the risk assessment and started changing settings. uh, But it continued
0: right through to August. And I would note during that period, what's still continuing now, arguably, but to a lesser extent, during that period, there were repeated media stories. Did you not see any of these very alarming media stories that were being done showing large groups of people living in housing. Clearly, I mean, arguably some people were suggesting human, human trafficking. Did that, did that not raise
5: red flags for you? Absolutely. Uh, and migrant exploitation is absolutely abhorrent.
0: And what did you do when you saw these reports, these media reports? Because the report notes that the media is actually a very important tool for immigration in New Zealand To get
5: a handle on things, yeah, absolutely, and um, I totally agree with uh, that statement. That um, employers can give us a lot of information. In the context of this, there are thirty three thousand accredited employers, and one hundred and seventy four employers so far as part of our migrant investigation um, investigation work that's occurred. Um, Only one hundred and seventy four. Organisations. Mm. I, I want to come back to that question though, because
0: there is an element of accountability in here, and who mm. and responsibility to ensure this doesn't happen again. Who is Absolutely. accountable? And did you and did senior did you ask senior management uh, when you saw these media stories repeatedly coming through of clear clear exploitation? Did you act on those? Did you did you did you ask?
5: Absolutely. Um, we we looked at those. Um, uh, those instances. We investigated them. Not of, all complaints are upheld. Uh, so we get uh, quite a few complaints uh, through our Migrant Exploitation 0800 number, and we investigate every one of those. We've opened a number of investigations uh, formally, and we have uh Done a number of post-accreditation checks. Around two thousand seven hundred uh, checks mm. so far, with a further six hundred.
0: Are, are there any management repercussions here in terms of employment issues? Was there? Any, have you raised any concerns with senior management, Immigration New Zealand? as to their performance and why this was allowed to happen?
5: Uh, Clearly, we have had uh, a lot of discussion uh, about the issues. The review focused on the operational implementation. The employment matters are separate uh, alongside that, if any uh, need to be acted on. I'm also uh, very clear with my Head of Immigration what our expectations are about work in this area and um, I'm extremely um, concerned about a number of the issues that have been raised in the report. We are clearly um, going to put a a plan of action uh, around each of the recommendations and we'll work hard to fix Mm. those issues. One of
0: the other red flags here is the number of applications declined. If we look at... I know it's not apples for apples here, mm-hmm. but if we go back to twenty nineteen essential skills out of i think forty nine thousand approved, there was a decline rate of eight percent mm. uh that had dropped to two percent in twenty twenty three I mean did that not raise some alarm bells that that something
5: was you know, people were being waved through here? So we tightened the settings as soon as we became aware of the increased risk in, um, in June last year, and the settings are pretty much as they were under the Would previous... you expect
0: that decline rate to
5: go back to something similar to tw- as 2019? Well, the decline rate will be, um, I think, um, likely to increase. Uh, we are definitely seeing a different risk profile post the COVID environment than we saw pre-COVID and as we build up that body of um, data uh, with the new system we'll have a much clearer understanding of how we can manage. How many
0: prosecutions have there been of, of anybody who's abused this system?
5: Uh, so we have currently 174 investigations. We have revoked 145 employers' accreditation, and we have 53 employers oh, But how many prosecutions? Uh, at this stage, we have one licensed immigration advisor uh, being prosecuted, and at this stage, the investigations are not completed to the point where a prosecution... I mean, do you, do
0: you need to be throwing the book at these guys to set an example... I mean, one doesn't seem very many. I mean, is there a need to go perhaps to a bit harder to send an example to the world that this will not be tolerated exploitation?
5: Absolutely, migrant exploitation should not be um, not be tolerated. What we have here is uh, uh, thirty three thousand employers who have been accredited. The vast majority of whom are good employers and migrants enjoy a good experience coming to New Zealand. What we have is some unscrupulous employers who are a very small percentage that we have identified and we will take appropriate it, action. It, but a lot of them, them have it's once just, the investigation. Sure, has but been a lot of them
0: came through when the systems were well, I don't want to say lax, but they were where they were more relaxed. So you're gonna to have to go back, aren't you, and reaudit a lot of these?
5: Uh, well, the migrant exploitation um, 0800 line gives us an opportunity to identify migrants that have been uh, in a position where they feel they have been exploited Every one of those complaints gets followed up uh, by yeah, our team. We know that those team. migrants
0: are in a weak position Absolutely. in terms of language barriers, they've got issues with money,
5: there's a, there's a power imbalance. But this is where I think some of the communities and our outreach into those communities can help us. So um, we work really closely with the NGO sector in this um, area. We have really good contacts through the refugee work that we do in different communities of New Zealand and I would urge anybody who has information to please forward it through to us. We will act on every amount OK, we've got to go, but very quickly,
0: yeah. you've, you've been presumably, like most government departments, asked to make major savings and cuts to your back office rather than front line. Will cuts affect your ability to do this, do the proper audits in future? Absolutely not. Thank you very much for your time. Carolyn Tremaine, that is the Chief Executive of
1: mb The Māori Health Authority, Te Aka Faiora is on life support as the government rushes to dismantle it under urgency. Opposition MPs were furious, not just at the repeal, but at the manner in which it's been done in an emotional evening at Parliament last night. Here's our political reporter, Giles Dexter.
4: Just 18 months after it was set up, the Māori Health Authority is the latest Labour initiative on the scrap heap. It is a reflection of an approach that failed to put health needs for all at its forefront and a reflection of an implementation plan that faced significant challenges from the beginning. Established by the last government to manage Maori health policies and services and combat overwhelming inequities, the health minister, Dr Shane Reti, argued it was simply leading to more bureaucracy. I want to paint a different dream, one that will be outcomes-driven, providing greater devolved decision making that will deliver care as close to the home and the hapu as possible disestablishing the akafai order was long signaled and signed off in the coalition agreements its demise still came as a sting for opposition mps it's simply
6: the status quo it's going exactly back to where it was and what happened when it was
0: like that mr speaker the health statistics for maori continued to be poor
7: excuse us or having to have a separate need to be able to have our well-being addressed because we are dying earlier than everyone else.
8: It is shameful, and Dr Retty, my view is that your conduct in this is cowardly.
4: The use of urgency to scrap the authority also a sore point. The Coalition's 100-day plan only included a commitment to introduce the repeal legislation, not completely scrap it in one go.
7: This is the fastest ever dissolution we've ever seen of anything in our lives. We've barely had our feet hit the ground. And actually we're insulted by watching politicians stand up and speak for one to two minutes about COPPA that are dear, not passionate, they about life and death for our communities.
4: The Waitangi Tribunal was set to meet tomorrow to challenge the repeal. Green MP Huhana Linden said axing the authority before the hearing could take place was a subversion of democracy.
7: There is a strong feeling in our kāinga and within iwi that we've been ripped off by this government. In disestablishing Te Aka now, we've never got a chance to see the waka grow and reach its full potential. Tiwi Māori is ripped off. This government under- undermines the Waitangi Tribunal. And knowing full well that the urgency is this week, I ask again, where is the justice?
4: The authorities' roles and functions transfer to Te Order and the Ministry of Health. The Haura Māori Advisory Committee and Iwi Māori Partnership Boards will remain in place. But while the function of the Partnership Boards looks to be watered down, the Minister says the Advisory Committee's voice could be strengthened. Yes, please. Uh, to offer advice that I need, to advice that I may not want to hear, that, that is the privilege and the purpose of HMAC, to be in that position, to be trusted advisors uh, to the Minister, to us, so that we can do a better job. Te Akawhai will officially be wound down by the end of June. It's far from the only controversial legislation appearing in the House this week. Next up, the smoke-free amendment bill.
1: That report from our political reporter, Charles Dexter, with uh, the Māori Health Authority, Te Akawhai
0: The wait is nearly over for mortgage holders, nervously wondering if they are in for another hike in interest rates. The Reserve Bank will today announce whether it will lift the official cash rate or if it will stay the same. But as Crystal Gibbons reports, many are already feeling the pinch.
8: It's been a fraught time for mortgage holders hoping to see an end to rising interest rates. Mortgage advisory company loan market director Bruce Patton says their anxiety is heightened by the fact economists can't agree on whether or not the market has reached its peak.
4: On one side, you've got the ANZ Bank saying there's going to be two more rate rises. And then on the side, you've got people, economists from the likes of Infometrics, that say we don't need any more rate rises. So people are in a real state of flux where they don't know when the rate's going to come down.
8: He says in the meantime, many people are just getting by. And instead of paying down the loan, they're limited to paying the interest.
4: We're seeing a number of clients more... Um, more than usual, asking to switch to interest only. Um, you know, uh, haven't seen a lot of that since the global financial crisis of 2008.
8: One homeowner who's refixing again after coming off a significantly lower mortgage rate last year was glad the latest jump was a bit smaller.
3: Now it's actually, you know, in terms of percentage, it's actually smaller. This is something I'm going from, you know, Low sixes to high sixes, sixes. Whereas the one before that, it was you know going from two to three, you know two six percent. So, so I guess the latest jump, you know, wasn't as high,
4: but obviously the payments were still pretty high.
8: But it's not just mortgage rates hitting homeowners in the pocket. Council rates and insurance costs are adding to the pressure. Financial mentor at Two Auckland Budgeting Services, David Berry, says an avalanche of costs is leaving people squeezed and stressed. In some more dire situations, he says some homeowners are making their mortgage payments using a bank overdraft.
0: The mortgage arrears are potentially being underreported if, if in fact um, you know the those mortgage payments are not showing on the, you know, we'll called on the mortgage account, but are actually only only showing on the uh, on the customer's uh, current account.
8: He says insurance has also been on the chopping block.
0: We're seeing a lot of people who are deciding that they're not going to insure um, their car or their contents, or and in fact, we see some of our clients with mortgages who who have who have actually stopped paying. The premiums on their mortgages, now on, the, on their houses covered by the mortgages, now that's actually a breach of their, of their loan agreement
4: because they've got to be fully insured.
8: Bruce Patton says many businesses are reportedly experiencing a downturn, which he expects will mean higher unemployment.
4: And I think that'll be the catalyst that brings the Reserve Bank to the realisation that they're going to have to drop interest rates sooner rather than later, which is why we believe they'll be this year as opposed to next.
8: The Reserve Bank
1: will be making an announcement on the official cash rate at 2 o'clock. The ability of companies to pay fines and reparations to the survivors and the families of the Fikari White Island eruption victims is under scrutiny at a sentencing hearing in Auckland. Fikari Management Limited, White Island Tours, Volcanic Air Safaris, uh, Air Safaris, Arius and Kahu NZ are all facing fines of up to $1.5 million each and reparations for their health and safety failings leading up to the disaster. Jordan Dunn reports.
6: A.V. Woods is the mother of Hayden Marshall-Inman, a tour guide and the first of 22 to be confirmed dead after the eruption. She thanked Judge Evangelos Thomas for his patience, kindness and compassion before speaking about her son.
7: This is hard to put into words because it never goes away. When Hayden died on White Island, a piece of me died and my heart carries the loss of him day and night. You, can't mean, you cannot mend a broke, mother's broken heart.
6: The court also heard from WorkSafe on what it believes is the right penalty for the health and safety failures. Vicari Management Limited wanted a 10% reduction on any fine, pointing to its lack of previous convictions and its cooperation with authorities. Prosecutor Christy McDonald kc disagrees.
3: By contrast, WorkSafe says 5% in total. The fact that there were no previous incidents namely eruptions when tourists or workers were on Ficare was because of, n- of luck, not good management.
6: White Island Tours, like some of the other defendants, has insurance to pay for any reparations. But the company wants any fine reduced by 55% to acknowledge its guilty plea, cooperation, remorse, and no previous convictions. Christy MacDonald says that's excessive.
3: There may be a degree of double-dipping, in a number of the factors. For example, there is some overlap between the discount sought for guilty plea, the offer to make amends, and the remorse as all arise from an acknowledgement of responsibility.
6: She argues any requests to reduce the amount of fines or reparations because of lack of funds should be dismissed.
3: And we say that's utterly inappropriate in this case. WorkSafe submits the court should still impose reparation and fines to illustrate the severity of this offending and for the benefit of general deterrence to illustrate what the otherwise appropriate financial penalties would be.
6: Fikari Management's counsel, James Kearney, told the judge the company was simply operating as the volcano's owner. Your honour, I must say, Fikari Management Limited, as licensor or landowner or someone in the position of a landowner, however we frame it, Fikari Management Limited cannot be more culpable than the tour operators. He's pointing the finger at government agencies and what he says are their failures to effectively regulate the health and safety of tour operators. WorkSafe, MBOP, NEMA, GNS and the New Zealand Police. Eyes wide open to all those parties and that provided some comfort to the operators that appropriate experts were comfortable with the assessments of risk and the manner in which those risks were being managed. Today, the court is expected to hear submissions from two more companies.
1: Jordan Dunn with that report.
0: A charity promoting ethical investment says ACC is still investing too much in fossil fuels. Now, the corporation invests $47 billion to pay for future injury claims. And it says it keeps investing in oil and gas because climate change, this is a quote, climate change involves all of us. Climate change correspondent Eloise Gibson reports.
7: Last financial year, company shares owned by ACC were responsible for making the equivalent of around 3.5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. That only counts shares on the stock market. The agency says it doesn't yet count the climate impact of its private investments. The emissions didn't all happen in New Zealand, but if they did, they would place ACC's share portfolio among the country's top dozen emitters. Globally, there's a push to get big and particularly public-owned investors out-of-the-planet heating business, so they're not financing climate disasters. Two years ago, ACC's clean investment specialist, James Muir, explained to Nine to Noon why selling off high-polluting shares made sense.
4: The great theory, of course, is that we increase the cost of capital of companies which, are, which
6: have high, high emissions. So if we don't invest, it's going to be more difficult for them to obtain finance
0: uh, and investment in, in the market. And anecdotally, because we talk to a lot of companies in the market, we we know that this is actually working.
7: Today, following a government directive to shrink its climate impact, ACC is on track to lower the carbon intensity of its investments by 60% by 2025 from 2019 levels. But it still has substantial investments in fossil fuel producers, enough to make around 700,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide last financial year, The equivalent to driving almost 300,000 cars for a year. ACC's external investment manager Peter Scobie defends sticking with oil and gas investments.
4: Climate change involves all of us, and reducing the overall carbon intensity of our investments means we want to hold users of fossil fuels, so that's people who burn them, to account as much as producers.
7: He says ACC believes in having the flexibility to invest in a broad range of energy sources because renewables cannot yet meet the whole world's energy demand. One exception is companies making 30% or more of their incomes from coal, which ACC has ditched. Mr Scobie says withdrawing completely from fossil fuels wouldn't help.
4: We were to pass our holdings on to someone else. It's possible that they don't have the same responsible. Invest the focus, as we do, and us acting alone is unlikely to raise the cost of capital.
7: That doesn't wash with Barry Coates, head of the Mindful Money charity which promotes ethical investment. He says divestment works.
8: People say, oh, divestment doesn't work. It works and it's a huge impact on these companies. And we see evidence of this all the time.
7: Mr Coates says ACC deserves credit for setting targets and reducing emissions and setting up a $100 million clean investment fund. But he says the world has moved on. He says the track record of companies like ExxonMobil doesn't support staying invested.
8: The major fossil fuel companies have been saying for years that they're going to transition to renewable energy. That's by no means the case. In fact, some of the major fossil fuel companies, companies like Exxon, Noble, and Chevron are, are actually increasing their exploration and production rather than decreasing it.
7: ACC's mantra is improving lives. Mr Coates says it's wrong for a health-focused agency to worsen health by investing in coal, something ACC still does within limits. BHP, which still earns money from coal, is among ACC's top 20 investments, although Peter Scobie says the company plans to get out of its last coal mine by 2030.
0: Climate change correspondent Eloise Gibson with that report. You've been listening to Morning
6: Report Top Stories.